And what is the shaking that God will do once more? And I will answer that because heaven knows if I'm going to get, I mean, it's in here, but there's a lot that's in here. Um, and the, the, the original shaking was at Mount Sinai, that whole picture. And if you look in the Old Testament, you know, it was crazy, you know, overwhelming. There's several points, actually, when God filled the tabernacle and on Mount Sinai and all those things, that it was just, you know, it's that word phoberon. They were terrified. So that was the first shaking. The second shaking will be at the end of time, when the, when the you know, the, the universe will pass away and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. So the second shaking will be Christ's return. Um, and if I get there, I'll mention that, but... We, we, hopefully we will. Any other questions before we begin? Yes, Don. What am I teaching next time? Uh, that requires information of which I'm not currently in possession. I have given that, usually by this time I have given it some thought. In fact, by this time last year I knew I wanted to teach Hebrews. I have no idea. Again, if you have suggestions, uh, anything other than Revelation is, is absolutely welcome. <laughs> Any other questions? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day, this, um, this semester of study. Father, for your word for Hebrews. Um, whoever the author may be, he has blessed, or she, has blessed me um, completely. And I just uh, thank you and praise you for that. I pray that, um, that what we have learned will um, spill over out of our minds and into our hearts and into our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we end with chapters 12 and 13, and our author is taking this wonderful package of Hebrews that he has, uh, has made so carefully, and he's tying it all together uh, in these chapters. And there will be thematic elements running throughout this, these, both of these chapters that we have seen before, thematic elements of faithful endurance, um, even amidst trial, especially amidst trial, faithful endurance, and taking God's view of suffering, uh, because he views it very differently than we do, and unity within the church, that they remain unified with one another as one body. And much of this chapter, as we have had before in Hebrews, much of the, both of these chapters is exhortation. Not that it is devoid of theology, but it is, uh, uh, very much of it is exhortation, is encouragement to us. Now, if we think back to chapter 11 from last week, the faith chapter, where we learned all of those things that, that, that uh, these men and women of faith did by faith and how they persevered by faith, the purpose of that chapter was to exhort uh, his listeners, and that would include us, to ex exhort his listeners to persevere, persevere by faith just as Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and all those others had persevered, just as they, those listed had done before them, they too were to persevere by faith. That implied purpose in chapter 11, now in chapter 12, becomes explicit. And it begins then with this word, therefore. Uh, so based on what I've already said, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't, I, I don't want you to get scared as we go through this. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on these two verses. So don't get worried that, boy, howdy, 20, you know, 20 minutes really on two verses? Yeah, 20 minutes really on two verses. Not only are these really important verses, but I've waited all semester to teach these, so I'm going to teach my heart out on these two verses. Uh, amen. <laughs> so therefore, based on the example and testimony of those who lived and died by faith, let us, too, persevere in faith. But if you notice from the therefore to the let us, uh, let us run, there's quite a bit there. We're going to go through that piece by piece of what he says. So therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses of which he's speaking is those in chapter 11, those listed in chapter 11, although obviously there are many, many more. 
um, that would fit into that. Uh, you know, I would list my own parents uh, as among those. And I know you two are probably thinking of, of many people who are part of that great cloud of witnesses who are testimonies of God's faithfulness. But then what, do, what does he mean by great cloud? Because what, what happens is um, that it will, uh, what happens is that we, we tend to think of them as spectators and that's not what they were. That's one of the interpretations that people sometimes have. A great cloud was an ancient idiom, a, a figure of speech um, of, of a great group of people or a large group of people. There is no intention here, I believe, by the author to say that there, to, to, for us to picture them as sitting on clouds, these great uh, heroes of the faith that have gone before, sitting on clouds, observing us. They are themselves the cloud. We, we might say, therefore, since we are surrounded by this throng of the faithful, this throng of witnesses. Um, so the author wants uh, his listeners and he wants us to recognize that we're part of that cloud, that we too are witnesses. Um, but then what does he mean by witnesses? Well, the, uh, one interpretation and probably the interpretation I heard first and how it's often um, interpreted is that they are witnessing us, that they are like spectators cheering us on. So, so this, you know, the, the idea of surrounded and the idea of a cloud is like we're running a race and they're going, you know, go Amy, go Amy. And, but the, I, don't, I don't believe that that's what our author intended primarily because it doesn't fit the context of Hebrews. Because in Hebrews, the purpose our author had in using those who have gone before us or those who uh, have testified is, is to say that they have testified to the faithfulness of God. Um, that they, are, they serve as examples to us of, as of those who have lived faithfully. The language here is not, even though he will use a, a race imagery, the language here is not that of, of spectators in a, in a forum, in a stadium. The language is courtroom language. Uh, they are not witnessing us. They are witnesses testifying to the faithfulness of God. They are taking the stand and, and testifying that God is faithful. Um, and so they were able to live by faith. So these are people, this great cloud of witnesses, are people who bear witness both to us and for God. They are bearing witness to us and they are bearing witness of God, which much better fits the context both of chapter 11 and of the whole uh, sermon letter of Hebrews. And there is undoubtedly great encouragement that is to be derived by those who have been there, done that. That those uh, who have been through what we have been through uh, can give to us. And so that would have been very important for the original hearers of Hebrews. It is as though our, our authors is saying that each of these people that were listed in chapter 11 are saying, you know what, I faced a difficult trial too, but God was faithful to me. God was with me in that trial and he will be for you too. That's the purpose of the witnesses, is to encourage us. They are testifying to God's grace. And that was, that was important for the original hearers as they went through persecution, as they went through trial. But it is also important for us. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, a, a great theologian, says it's not so much that they look at us as we who look to them for encouragement. I think a number of weeks ago, I told you about my friend Elissa Vilter, uh, one of my dearest friends, who I met after my father died because she had written me, I'd never met her before, she had written me uh, a, a sympathy note that I kept that I still have because I knew by what she had written that she really was praying for me and she really cared about the grief I was feeling, and which made me want to find out who she was and to be introduced to her. And then we became great friends and one of the first things I found out about Elissa is that she had lost her beloved mother 11 months earlier. 
And so as I walked through that grief, she understood what I was feeling. And in fact, to this day, I get a note on February 12th from her, and she gets one on March, I think it's 13th, from me, um, uh, because we understand uh, what that's like. And so that, that, that been there, done that, that I've been through this, and God was faithful to me in my grief, was so comforting for me and so encouraging and so important for me uh, as I have continued to walk through that. Um, And then he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Well, to throw off, the the picture he's giving us is is of a runner preparing for a race. And, And maybe not just preparing for a race immediately where they would literally throw off their clothing, all of it. You know, which I, you know, I don't think he means for us to do that literally. Although I did meet a woman once, I think I've told some of you this, a woman once who tried to tell me that um, she wanted to go, uh, go return to exotic dancing as a, as a form of ministry. And she did not like that I told her that God wouldn't call her into that. But, but that's not what the author is trying to tell us here. It also can refer to the training process where, um, where the, the athlete might try to, to shed excess weight, shed uh, body fat in preparing for the race. The, the, the thing that our author is saying here is that we are to push aside anything that would hinder free movement, anything that would hinder us in our race. So what are they then to throw off? They are to throw off anything that hinders them in this race. And that hindrance probably means, that phrase probably means that what hinders you, that what hinders you, what hinders one person um, doesn't hinder another. So it would be different from person to person. Well, what are we prone to, left to our own devices, what are we prone to. One of my favorite hymns uh, is uh, Come Thou Fount, and the last verse is my favorite. And, and he says in that, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. What is it that makes you prone to that, that by your natural inclination would cause you to turn away? And I know what mine is, M- you know, my own laziness, my own apathy, my own anger, but yours would be different. So what are those hindrances? But obviously, the sin that so easily entangles, we are all called to thrust aside sin, whatever that might be. The word picture here is of a runner in a race getting tripped up by sin. Um, And we've all seen that in races. The thing I thought of was I saw this years ago, and I searched YouTube for far too long trying to find video of this. I'm I'm telling you, I promise to you, what I'm about to tell you is entirely true. I don't know if any else of you remember it, but a number of years ago, they tried to make gymnastics more of a spectator sport. And so they had these competitions that weren't the major competitions to see who goes to nationals. It was just for people to come watch. And one of the things they did was they allowed the girls to wear costumes, not the leotards that, that don't hinder them, but costumes. And this one girl got up to do her floor exercise in a genie costume with, you know, with the pantaloon pants that went down. Okay, She made her first pass. I should not laugh because the poor thing. She made her first pass, and as she was running, she began to lose the pants. She probably should have stopped because by the time she finished her flip, they were around her ankles and she landed on her face. She should have thrown off those pants that were hindering. And I never saw that on TV again. I think they said, you know what? Bad idea. Bad idea to not, you know, just leave, let's stick with the leotards. That's the picture the author is trying to get us, is when we allow us, when we run the race of life in our genie pants, we're going to get tripped up. We need to throw off those things that tend to hinder us. Um, And then now we get to the main clause. Doing all those things, let us run with perseverance the race marked before us. Now, this race is not a competition. We're not running against each other. There's not you win, I lose. All of us who finish the race, we're we're all winners. Um, We are simply striving to finish the race. And the race is a marathon. It is not a sprint, which is why 
he uses the word in, words endurance or perseverance, depending on your translation. It requires endurance or perseverance. It requires sustained effort over time. And we are to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. What I see here is one of those short hurdle races where the guys, I mean, they're, they're going over hurdles, but they never look at the hurdles. They know how many steps it is to the next hurdle, and their eyes are on the finish line the whole time. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's an analogy to athletes with their eyes fixed on the goal. Literally, that word fix our eyes on Jesus is with eyes only for Jesus. I love that. Partly because my husband's and my song is, I only have eyes for you. Uh, and so that I get that. It, it, it means, that, that phrase means to look to someone or something um, in the sense of relying on that person or looking to someone for support or inspiration. Our eyes are to be fixed on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. That word author can mean champion or leader or forerunner or initiator. And I don't think we have to choose because Jesus is all of those things for our faith. And different uh, versions use different ones of those. He is also the preeminent example of endurance. He endured the cross, the most shameful, horrible thing imaginable, the worst trial there could be. He ran the race before us. He is our forerunner. He is our leader. He won our salvation. He is our champion. And through his shed blood, he is the one that created the path on which we run. He is the initiator of our faith. He's also the perfecter of our faith. We've seen that word perfect a lot of times, haven't we, in Hebrews. He fully accomplished everything needed for our faith. He brought us to God's desired end, to God's intended goal for us. Our faith is entirely dependent on Jesus. And why did he do that? Who for the joy set before him? That means in prospect of the joy set before him or in order to obtain the joy set before him. Well, then what was that? joy. It was his exaltation. After accomplishing everything that God had called him to do on our behalf. And everything that means for him and for us. That was his joy. Scorning the shame. Who for the joy set before him, he scorned the shame. That word scorn is the word kataphroneo. And it means to treat something as if it has little value. To treat something as if it had little value. Jesus treated the enormous shame, the enormous pain, the enormous suffering of the cross as insignificant and of little consequence because of the joy set before him. And when he had done that, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is the fifth time that our author has, has referenced Psalm 110, verse 1. Come sit at my right hand. But in this particular, and we don't see it in the English, but you can see it in the Greek. In this particular instance, he has changed the tense from the previous four times he's used it. All four of those times were an ancient Greek tense, past tense. It's called aorist. I don't know, some of you may care about that, but it's an ancient past Greek tense that means something that happened in the past that does not have further result or implication. In this case, he uses the past perfect tense, which means a past action 
with continuing results. So what our author is telling us here is Jesus sat down, but he's still there. It is a past action with continuing results. And we can look to him for encouragement. And so the listeners, uh, the original listeners as well of us, we are, we are encouraged to look beyond the difficulties of this life and to God's promised rewards, just as Jesus did. Well, those are the first two verses. I don't know, how long did that take? About 20 minutes of, of uh, chapter 12. And now we move on uh, to verse 3. Hopefully we move on. It's not doing it? I let it go too long. When it rests for a while, it just decides to sleep. There we go. Uh, So verse 3, I like teaching without my shoes better. Do you know that? So there they go. But my new new $4 pants are too long. But if I have them hemmed, now they're more than $4. Okay, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So consider... Jesus. This, this verse is a transition from Jesus and his mistreatment, from moving from the mistreatment of Jesus to their own trials, to the trials of his listeners, in hope that they too might scorn their own shame, consider of little value as infin- insignificant when weighed against the eternity that awaits them consider their trials as insignificant. Now that word consider means careful deliberation. Consider something carefully. So again he is telling them focus on Jesus. Consider him who endured such suffering from sinful men. And and he uses the word sinful men or or sinful people or sinners depending on your um, translation. And he's telling them, look, Jesus faced persecution from sinners, just like you. They, too, were facing persecution from sinners. So then he tells them why they should consider Jesus. Why should they consider Jesus and his persecution and his response to that persecution? So they do not grow weary and lose heart. That first word, grow weary, means to grow discouraged or to grow spiritually fatigued. The second, to lose heart, means to become faint or to give out. Aristotle actually used that second word, lose heart, um, for runners who collapse after reaching the finish line, who cross the finish line and then collapse uh, from a long race. Our author is using it here to say, Don't collapse before you get there. Keep running all the way to the end of the race. Keep running all the way to your goal of heaven. The author wanted his listeners, and he wants us, to draw strength from the outcome of Jesus' suffering. Look to Jesus. Look to what his suffering led, and it will for you too. Not at God's right hand, but certainly to God's glory. Then in verses 4 to 8... Our author gives us um, proof of uh, God's paternity. Uh, So he says in verses 4 to 8, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. So he's taking this look at discipline, of of the trials they are going through, and giving them kind of a different view, uh, putting a spin on it, sort of. And, And he's talking about the impact that those trials have on our faith. The original listeners may have wondered why God would allow this suffering into their lives. Why would he allow them to suffer persecution? They may have even doubted God's love for them. That is a very, very common response 
throughout, throughout all time to trials. And so then our author uses Proverbs 3.12, which is the, the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons, to make this point. The point our author is making is the, that the fact that God disciplines us is proof that we are his children. His discipline is not arbitrary. Rather, since God is a loving father who desires the best for his children, his discipline is evidence of his love for and his commitment to them. The author wants his listeners to see in their current trials, in their current difficulties, God's hand lovingly training them in right character. Which is why he says, don't make light of God's discipline. That word to make light of is a synonym of the word scorning. And so what he's saying is don't consider God's discipline as insignificant. Don't consider God's discipline as of little, being of little value. It has a purpose. God has a purpose in our suffering, whether we see it or not. But then the verse from Hebrews uses this word punishment, which gives, gives us an entirely, I mean, discipline we can see, you know, yeah, the kid's going with a fork over to the outlet, I need to lovingly remove the child from that. We can see that, but punishment, I mean, that just brings up these sort of harsh images for us. And I think that that's kind of an unfortunate translation, because what that word actually means is loving parental training intended to change attitudes and behavior. It is done in love. Truthfully, all discipline, all punishment should be done in love. And that is the case with God. Not always the case with us, but is the, that is the case with God. So God is not abusing his children. He's not saying, boy, you sinned, I'm going to get you. He's not abusing his children. He is using the abuse of sinful people to bring about his own good purposes in the lives of his children. It is not unlike what Joseph said after all that he went through and he was faced with his brothers again and they were going, dude, we are sorry. And he says, no, no. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is taking the abuse of sinful people and turning it around, turning it inside out for his good purposes. Now, I want to I make a little clarification, a little word on this, this idea of discipline. Because our author is not necessarily saying that they, they, have, they are enduring this because they have sinned, that this is God's response to their sin. You sinned, I'm going to put you in jail. It is not necessarily uh, God uh, disciplining them for their disobedience or sin. It can be. God does do that. God does discipline us for our sin, and it can be in response to disobedience uh, for, or sin. God does that, and, and we as earthly parents do that. But that is not necessarily, in fact, I'm going to go so far as to say, I don't think that that's the picture that he is trying to draw here. Because there's another type of discipline. Discipline is also used in a positive sense to train to reach a goal. Not unlike athletic training, which is difficult. It's a trial. But there's a goal, there's a purpose in mind. Either way, we need to remember that the, that the purpose of God's discipline, whether it's for sin or whether it's for training, is always restorative. It's never to punish. It is always restorative. It always has a redemptive purpose to bring us back to him. Uh, God uses trial and difficulty to grow us in righteousness. Uh, I used to get the FCA magazine when I was an FCA leader, and I got one one month. This is a long time ago. And, uh, and I was flipping through it. I really couldn't read it. And I saw that there was a chick there that had run the Ironman Triathlon in Hawaii. If you don't know what a triathlon is, it's three events, okay? Three, you, you, you swim for 2.4 miles. Then you hop on a bike, 
and you ride it for 112 miles. And then after you've done that, immediately after you've done that, you run a marathon, 26.2 miles. And this chick was toward the end of her 26.2 miles, and she looked like she was going to lose heart right there. She was going to faint. She looked almost dead. I, just, I was like, whoa, hard triathlon, and kept going. And the, didn't read the story, didn't anything. And then some uh, time later, went up to Minnesota to see my very dear friend and college roommate, Tammy Metcalf-Filson. And she said, did you see my article in the FCA magazine? And I said, what article? She said, well, you know, I did the Iron Man. I said, yeah, I know you did the Iron Man. Did you see my article? I said, no, I guess I didn't. And she brought out the magazine. I'm like, oh. I did not even recognize. At this point, I'd known her for nearly 15 years. Very, very close friend. It was a picture of Tammy. at the. She made it. She did the whole thing. She trained like, I knew she was training. She trained like crazy. She already had two kids at this point, had adopted a third. Now they have eight. But um, anyway, they, I know. I love Tammy. Tammy is wonderful. If you're listening to this, Tammy, I love you. She had worked like crazy. She's probably the most disciplined human being I've ever known. I don't know what she has, why she has anything to do with me, but she's very disciplined. And uh, it was not fun for her to do that, but it was productive. She achieved a goal, and that's a point our author is just about to make as he continues his exposition. He says in verse 9, Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father and our spirit, of our spirits and live? So again, he's using this idea of lesser to greater. If we respected our father, human fathers for their discipline, then how much more ought we to submit to our loving Heavenly Father who disciplines us perfectly? That word for submit is hupotasso, which means it's actually a military term, uh, which means to voluntarily yield to or to come into line with. Actually, it's like a marching term, to keep in step, to, to voluntarily follow the person in front of you in step with them. We are to submit, for his path is the only path that leads to life. We are to voluntarily submit. And then he gives us the result of discipline, the, the purpose and, and what it, it leads to. He says, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So there is purpose in discipline. Because God disciplines us for our good, it produces spiritual fruit in our lives, namely righteousness and peace. Those trials are the primary way that God grows us to become more like Jesus. It's the primary means by which we become more like Jesus. It's not fun. But our off, and I'm all about fun. Listen, this is a hindrance for me. No lie. I would rather have fun than any other thing. And I will say, I mean, I've, I've said to God before, this is not fun what I'm going through. Like, it's, that's what I'm supposed to be having is fun. Uh, but it is not fun. Um, but the author's point is that the result of the discipline is emphatically worth the price of the pain. This concept is what enabled my older sister, shortly after losing nearly everything she owned in a fire that destroyed, completely destroyed her home, to say, God has blessed me, not in spite of the fire, but because of the fire. And she wouldn't trade what she learned and how she grew in her faith through that experience for anything she owned. Fortunately, the dog and the children <laughs> were all safe. But she would not trade that. Um, and then we move on to verses 12 and 13, where he says, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be di disabled, but rather healed. This, this sort of picture is taken from the Old Testament, from verses in Isaiah and Proverbs. And it is a call to his listeners, to renew their commitment. 
He's saying since the path of discipline is hard, you must strengthen your resolve to stay the course. But what we lose in the, in the English in this is that it is a communal resolve uh, because they must strengthen their resolve so that the lame, so that those who are tempted to turn away might not be dislocated, the literal meaning of that word, might not be dislocated, might not be cut off from God, but rather be healed, be restored to faith. So the picture our author is getting, giving us here is one of a community of believers encouraging and building one another up through this trial, that, they aren't, that we're not spiritual lone rangers. We are never meant to be spiritual lone rangers but rather living in community and encouraging one another. So then based on all this, um, uh, he says, therefore, based on all this, live in community with one another, encouraging one another and building one another up. And then in verses 14 through 17, I should just give up on this thing and just let Julie do it. Thank you very much, Julie. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. So this is talking about the impact that our, uh, the way we live has on community. And he tells them live in peace and holiness. And both are necessary for the body to function well, for the body of Christ, the body of believers to function well. When we fight or when uh, our sinful selfishness Choose our sinful, we choose our sinful selfishness over godly relationship. The entire body suffers. And one of the worst things is bitterness or unforgiveness. And he calls it a root of bitterness. Unforgiveness breeds a grumbling, quarreling body of believers. Just ask the wandering Israelites. That's exactly what they did. They let bitterness toward Moses, bitterness toward God, bitterness toward each other to just tear them apart. The body of Christ is torn apart as accusations start flying and the gospel is damaged in the process while the world outside goes, look at those Christians, they can't even get along with each other. They can't even love each other. How can they love anyone else? Bitterness will eat you up inside, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. You've probably heard this before, but I've, I've heard that refusing to forgive another person is like drinking poison and expecting them to die. We need to be forgiving people and not let that bitterness uh, grow up inside us. And then he talks about Esau. Esau. Now, we're not told in Scripture that Esau was Im sexually immoral, um, but early tradition spoke of Esau that way. Either way, though, that term uh, was used sometimes metaphorically to refer to anyone who um, lived only for physical pleasure of any kind. And so, you know, some guy that's willing to sell away his birthright for a bowl of stew, that fits him. That's Esau all over. Um, although what I'm smelling over there right now, if I had a birthright, <laughs> no. Here's the point the author is giving us, that for something as valueless as a meal, and in, to, in, in order to gratify his own physical pleasure, his own appetite, Esau foolishly bartered away his firstborn rights, which were part of God's redemptive purpose. Uh, so what he's saying then is that Esau despised the purposes and provision of God. He despised God's covenant and sought to do things his own way, which showed him to be among those who reject God and his redemption. 
And when Esau realized what it was he had done and felt sorry, he wasn't sorry about his own foolishness. He was sorry that he lost his inheritance. Years ago when I taught at Millard North, I was walking down the hallway and I looked really young. And there were some guys walking beside me that didn't realize I was a teacher and they were cussing a blue streak. And I turned and I looked at them. And they went, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I said, you're not sorry you said it. You're sorry I heard it. And there's a difference. Esau was just sorry about the result. He wasn't sorry about his foolishness. We too are God's heirs. And we must not despise, we must not scorn, treat as insignificant the blessings and things of God. Well, then we go to this tale of two mountains where there are summary themes. And I'm going to put the verses up here, or Julie is going to put the verses up here. Um, but uh, I'm not going to read them because we really don't have time to read them. Um, but these two mountains um, represent two covenants. So this, this terrible mountain, this shaking mountain, represents, represents the Sinaitic covenant. And the picture here is dreadful and terrible. If you look at those words, everything about them is to give this sort of um, nightmare movie to, uh, that was going on. The Old Testament accounts are of a people who were terrified uh, by what they saw, by what they heard, even by what they smelled. They were absolutely terrified by God's presence. God's presence caused a meltdown of, of sensory overload for them. Even Moses freaked out. I mean, it was a scary situation. And there was no way that they could draw near to this mountain on which dwelt a God who was a consuming fire. If an animal even got close enough to touch it, he died immediately. So then he pictures a second mountain, which is Mount Zion, which represents heaven and God's dwelling place and the new covenant in Christ's blood. And the words here are of a joyous, angelic uh, celebration with God's people. Way better than any sporting event, even, even Husker football. Although as I drove into Lincoln the other day and the stadium was over here and, and the baseball stadium and the new basketball, I literally, I'm driving along, there's music playing, I go, go Big Red! I just had to. But way better than any of that is this joyous, Heavenly celebration. In 1 Corinthians, pretty sure it's 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived the joy that awaits us, what God has awaiting for us in heaven. Because of Jesus, we can draw near to that mountain. We will one day draw near and be in God's presence. And we can draw near to God boldly, with confidence, and with utter joy. Well, then in verses 25 through 29, he gives them a final warning. And again, I'm not going to read this uh, to you. I was planning to, but we really need to finish. And it says, don't refuse him who speaks, which means don't refuse God. Um, and he uses another lesser to greater argument and says, if the Israelites were judged for not listening to a message from God that came from earth, that came from the mountain, from Mount Sinai, how much more will those be judged if they reject the message from heaven, from Jesus? And then there's that shaking of heaven and earth that I already described, the original shaking of Mount Sinai and the future shaking, the judgment at the end of time when Christ returns. The material universe will pass away. Only God's unshakable kingdom. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Only God's unshakable kingdom will remain uh, in a new heaven and new earth. And then the important thing to recognize here is, then how do we respond to that? Therefore, based on that, what is our response? Since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us respond with gratitude and worship in awe. I have a real bugaboo, and I'm sorry, I, I, I may be stepping on some toes here, but I have a real bugaboo with the overuse of the word awesome in our culture. Because truly, only God is awesome. I bet Mary Jo's soup is fabulous, and I can't wait to taste it, but it's not awesome. Because only God 
can cause that response to happen. Years ago, um, there was a missionary couple, Jim and Elizabeth Elliott, of whom I'm sure you're aware, uh, who were attempting to minister to the Aka Indians. And along with his group of men, um, they had made some contact and had some hopeful response from them. And so they decided to fly in and meet the Indians. They were expecting to meet friends. They met enemies and and they were killed uh, by these Indians. God has brought unbelievable fruit from that tragedy. Uh, But seven years before that event, Jim Elliott wrote a a very, very young man, a very, very young Jim Elliott, said something, wrote something that is still often quoted today, and it is this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I love what Dr. Guthrie says about this. He says, Hebrews challenges us to live in light of that which cannot be lost, the unshakable kingdom of God. We gain what we cannot lose by trusting God's grace of the past, present, and future, heeding the word of God, and living in reverent awe of him. May we be found living in light of eternity today. Indeed, may we. Well, this is going to be the fastest run through chapter 13 that you've ever seen. And I have, I think, all of the verses up there, but I'm not going to read any of them. So if you can keep up with me, that would be great. If you can't, it's not a problem. So our author is going to give us some not-so-random exhortations in the first six verses. Our author's concern here is that the body of believers would be unified. He's returning back to that sort of, you're being fractured and I need you to be unified thing. And he begins by saying, love as brothers, love as brothers and sisters. The rest of those in the first six verses, he's telling them how that's done. How do you love as brothers? You love as brothers by showing hospitality to other believers. You love as brothers by caring for those in need. Specifically, he talks here about those that are in prison. Identify with them. Uh, Keep them encouraged so that they don't lose heart. We live uh, as, uh, as love, we live in love when we keep our marriage vows in faithfulness uh, in our marriage. That word to honor the marriage bed, that means to view our vows as valuable and precious. I love that. And, and what he's saying in that verse, keeping the marriage bed pure, is both before marriage and after marriage. Purity in marriage begins really at birth, certainly at puberty. Uh, and so we are to be faithful in marriage. Finally, we love as brothers and sisters when we are generous and content and not greedy. Discontent with what we have, discontent with material goods is tantamount to accusing God of being an incompetent provider. Therefore, we must trust God to meet our needs. And then he's going to give guidelines for church leadership, beginning with past church leaders, leaders who have died and gone on. And he says they're a source, they're saying that let them be a source of inspiration and encouragement to you. Jesus was faithful to them, and he will be to you. Jesus was their help in time of need, and he will be yours. He is the same Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same Jesus now as he was then and he will be forever. Circumstances will change. Jesus and his gospel never do. And then in verses 9 through 19, he gives a list of reminders. In verses 9 through 14, he gives us a reminder of the superiority of Jesus and his gospel. In verses 15 and 16, he gives us a reminder to offer praise to God. In verse, uh, and generosity to others. In verse 17, he gives us a reminder to obey our leaders. And then finally in verses 18 and 19, he asks them to pray, to pray for them, pray for us, he says. And then in verses uh, 20 and 21, his closing, 20 through 25, in verses 20 through 21, he gives this wonderful benediction, this wonderful prayer. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. 
Amen. So this prayer contains echoes of all of Hebrews, of all of this letter sermon in it. He mentions Christ's offering of his blood. He mentions the new covenant that was in that blood. He mentions God's work in us to do his will. And he talks about us living in light of God's will and in light of all Jesus, or living according to God's will and in light of all Jesus has done on our behalf. And then the last verses are his closing greetings. You know, ladies, as we approach Easter, I can think of no better way to prepare our hearts for that celebration than this book of Hebrews that we've just studied. God still speaks through his son. God has provided complete forgiveness for us through his son. And God has provided a way for us to be in relationship with him through his son. Jesus is truly better than any other way. And in fact, he is the only way to the wholeness for which God intended us. For he is the only one who endured the cross for us. He is the only one who was raised to new life for us. And he is the only one who is now and forevermore will be seated at the right hand of God. Clothed in glory and honor. Ladies, Jesus is our risen and reigning Lord. And he will return for us one day. How can we not, in reverent awe, bow before him in praise and worship? Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this this book, this letter, this truth that we have studied this semester. Thank you that Jesus is seated at your right hand having accomplished everything we need to be in relationship with you. Thank you for the promise that one day we will be there too. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you guys get up, let's give Amy a, let's show her our appreciation for the And um, each of the ladies have taken a moment to write about how much the study and you have meant to them. And so Thank we'll let you, you enjoy those over the next Thank you. I appreciate that. So, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I have a little reading to do. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I am humbled by this, that you show up every week. And I'm just so grateful for each and every one of you. And let's, uh, should I pray for our meal? And let's eat. Father God, thank you for your provision in our lives and for this meal you have prepared. Bless it to our bodies that we might live and serve and honor you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much.